This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from ASAP Science, the Tom Hartman Program, Economic Update with Richard Wolff, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, the Institute for Global Labor and Human Rights, Activism for Buy Nothing Day, and the Young Turks. While many of us go through life with the pursuit of money on our minds, we're often told that money can't buy happiness. But what truth is there in this saying? Is there a correlation between money and happiness? And if so, how can we use it to our advantage? Humans are very sensitive to change. When we get a raise or commission, we really enjoy it. But we adapt at incredible speeds to our new wealth. Some studies have shown that in North America, additional income beyond $75,000 a year ceases to impact day-to-day happiness. In fact, people who win the lottery often report becoming extremely unhappy. They often end up spending all the money, going into debt, and experienced ruined social relationships. So surely money can't really buy happiness. Well, recent studies suggest that the problem may actually be in the way that we spend money. Instead of buying things for yourself, try giving some of it to other people and see how you feel. Studies show that people who spend their money on others feel happier. And while people who spend it on themselves don't necessarily become less happy, their happiness is unchanged. This same principle has been tested on teams and organizations as well. One experiment showed that instead of an organization writing a large check to a charity, dividing the amount up amongst employees and allowing them to contribute to a charity of their choosing increased their job satisfaction. Similarly, individuals that spent monetary incentives on each other as opposed to themselves increased not only job satisfaction, but improved team performance and sales. This has been seen in both sales and sports teams. Almost everywhere we look in the world, we see that giving money or gifts to others is positively correlated with happiness. Interestingly, the specific way the money is spent on others isn't important. From trivial gifts to major charity efforts, spending something on others is the important aspect in increasing your happiness. The emotional rewards of pro-social spending are even detectable at the neural level. If you are going to spend the money on yourself, try to go after experiences as opposed to material things. Traveling or going to an event is more impactful for the vast majority of people in the long run. And while you're saving up for these big experiences, don't forget about the daily joys in life. Many small, frequent pleasures help to get you through the days and encourage change, which stimulates the brain. Instead of buying a $3,000 rug that provides a one-time experience for the next 10 years, a $5 latte with friends will be different each time, offering unique access to happiness opportunities. Though money is unlikely to be the main source of happiness in our lives, it certainly has the potential to make some things easier and complicate others. But at the end of the day, it can buy happiness, if spent in the right way. Is it possible for unregulated capitalism, you know, the, the, the type of capitalism that libertarians and by and large Republicans are in favor of, 
where government has a very limited role in regulating capitalism and basically the capitalists run the show. Is it possible to have a functioning democratic society, small d democratic society, that produces one of the, or, or arguably all of the criteria that Thomas Jefferson defined in the, in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, is it possible to produce that for the majority of people in a capitalist society in an, with unregulated capitalism? Now, I'm not a total opponent of capitalism. I am, a, I am an opponent of laissez-faire capitalism, of unregulated capitalism, of capitalism where the capitalists make the rules and the rest of us get stuck with the rules. Let's keep in mind, there are probably only a few tens of thousands, maybe a, maybe a hundred thousand, but not a lot of actual capitalists in the United States. Capitalists are people who earn their living with capital. Laborers are people who earn their living by by their work. And there's a very significant difference between the two. Capitalists earn their living using their money, investing their money, sitting around the pool, you know, uh, waiting for the dividend check to arrive sometimes more actively using their money the way Mitt Romney did, buy a company, lay off the workers, move the factory to China, jack up the profits, take the money. Hey, that's what capitalists do. So is it possible for capitalism in a relatively unregulated fashion, as we have by and large in the United States right now, and as we had in the United States in the 1920s, and we did not have in the United States from the 1930s until arguably the, the, or the, the late 1980s. Instead, during that period of time, we had heavily regulated capitalism. You know, you, you get all these Republicans and these billionaires and the shills for the billionaires and the shills for the big corporations running around going, you know, like their hair on fire. Oh my God, the regulations, it's killing America. It's kill all these small businesses have vanished because of regulations. I'm sorry, I run a small business and I haven't noticed any regulations. Oh, it's the taxes, they're killing. Their small businesses in America generally don't pay taxes. I mean, they, they certainly contribute to economic activity. They, they, you know, they pay their employees. They, they split the FICA with them. They, you know, there, there is money that goes to the federal government, but, the you know the taxes are paid by companies like Apple that make hundreds of or, or Exxon Mobil that make hundreds of millions, tens of billions of dollars in profits, and particularly now are trying to shelter those by keeping them offshore, in the hopes that the day will come when there's a Republican president and a Republican Congress, and they'll say, "Gee, let's just uh, declare a holiday, a moratorium." All these big companies, Apple's got a hundred billion dollars sitting offshore; they can bring that home, and instead of paying. You know, the maximum 40% in corporate income tax. What with deductions and everything else would probably work out between 20 and 25%. Uh, they can bring it home for 3% or for free. This is what they're all working on right now, right? This, this repatriation. Bring home the money. Right. Sounds nice. It's a great slogan. It makes a great bumper sticker, which is what the Republican Party is all about. If you can reduce it to a bumper sticker and get people to say it and repeat it, and they think they know what they're talking about, and they don't, then that's a Republican issue. So the question, can you have a well-educated, 
safe, secure, healthy, happy populace and have unregulated capitalism. Jefferson's three criteria, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How can you have life if you are sick and you don't have access to health care because you can't afford it? So, you know, we are the only country in the world that does not have, the only developed country in the world that does not have a national health care system of some sh- form or shape. I mean, the, the, the Switzerland doesn't have a national health care system. It's run by the government. But the government does require everybody in Switzerland to buy health insurance, and they have to buy it from a nonprofit organization, so it doesn't cost very much. But everybody is insured in Switzerland, have to be. Other countries, uh, England, they have the National Health Service in England. It's actually owned by the government, by the people. You have other countries that have single-payer health care systems, like most of the Scandinavian countries, where the government doesn't own the clinics or employ the doctors, but they pay the bills. But how do you have life in the United States, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, declaration of independence? How do you have life if you're sick and you can't afford to go to the doctor? You don't. So we have not yet, you know, Obamacare has taken us a step forward, but we have not yet met the founding ideals of this country. So that's life. Liberty is the second one. How can you have liberty in a society run by oligarchs and plutocrats. Now, we had a guest on in the last hour who is, you know, representing an organization that's funded in part by oligarchs and plutocrats, saying, you know, we're a freedom agenda. People should be free to make their own choices. Right. So you're sick and you can't afford to go to the doctor. You're hungry and you can't afford to buy food. You want to work, but there's no jobs because the capitalists moved all the jobs to Vietnam and China and and Honduras and whatever. Are you free? Do you have liberty? I mean, we know that for the roughly half of Americans who live at or below the poverty level, they're not, you know, their their right to life is significantly impaired. Tens of thousands of them die unnecessarily every year. What about their right to liberty? Franklin Roosevelt said, a necessitous man, in other words, somebody who doesn't have their basic necessary needs met, a necessitous man is not a free man. You are free when you have a job that pays enough money that you can have a home and you can raise your kids and you can take a vacation and you can, and, and your debt, and you can live debt free. That's freedom. That's liberty. Now, the libertarians and the right-wingers and the Republicans would want you to think that liberty and freedom means something else. I mean, they throw out this abstraction. We we are a liberty agenda, freedom agenda. And what does that mean? Well, it means that the Koch brothers can pollute the rivers all they want with their paper factories for Georgia Pacific. Or that they can pollute the air all they want with Coke Industries, uh, you know, oil refineries. Or they can throw as much carbon in, in the atmosphere as they want with all the car, tol, tar sands that they own up in uh, Alberta in Canada and then ship it down to the Gulf Coast where they can refine it in their refineries and then sell it to China. That's freedom. But what about my freedom to live in a planet that isn't melting down as a consequence of their freedom? Well, that, that's not the kind of freedom Republicans and libertarians are talking about. So there's life, liberty, and then happiness. 
How can you be happy if you're hungry? How can you be happy if you're homeless? How can you, you know, it, there, we have debunked the idea that money buys happiness. But there actually is a kernel of truth to it. The first thirty to fifty thousand dollars, or really twenty to fifty thousand dollars that a person earns every year, depending on where they live, makes a huge difference in the quality of their happiness. After that, you make a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred. It doesn't seem to have much effect. In fact, a lot of money can make people miserable. Capitalism came into the world as the dominant economic system back in the 17th and 18th centuries in Europe, first in Britain and then on the continent, and from there it spread. And the capitalist system, uh, the system of an employer, employee, an enterprise, a corporation, all of that, workers selling their ability to work for a wage, all of that, capitalism replaced generally two other systems that had been very important in the prior thousands of years of European history. One was called feudalism, where you have lords of the land and serfs, people who were stuck on the piece of land where they were born because they, in a sense, had to stay there because that was the only way to survive. Their parents were serfs of some large lord who lorded it over them. So capitalism came out of serfdom or feudalism in Europe, or it replaced slavery, a situation where one person wasn't the serf and another one was the lord. Instead, one person was the property of another, the slave and the master. So having often with violence overthrown a slave system, that was the Civil War in the United States, or having overthrown with violence the feudal system, that was the French Revolution in 1789, capitalism boasted for a long time that it was the bearer of democracy. What did it mean? Well, it meant, look, uh, we were part of the revolution that overthrew and got rid of slavery. We were part of the revolution that overthrew and got rid of serfdom, feudalism. We don't allow people to be slaves anymore. We freed them. And we don't allow people to be serfs anymore. We liberated and freed them. See, capitalism is freedom. Capitalism is democracy. I want everyone to, to understand that while it is true that capitalism arises in Europe with the demise of slavery and the demise of feudalism, it is not true that capitalism represents democracy. The problem is precisely that what capitalism did is get rid of master and slave. It got rid of lord and serf. But it substituted for those relationships another one very much like it, called employer and employee. Let's review. The master can control what the serf does, and the, excuse me, the master can control what the slave does, because the slave is the property of the master, like his horse, like his furniture, like his garden. 
The Lord can control the surf because the surf has to stay there because the surf has nowhere else to go because the parents of the surf are themselves surfs. So the surf is stuck and the Lord has extraordinary power. But now let's review. What is the power of the board of directors of a modern corporation which is where most employees earn their living? It's a handful of people. 12 to 15, usually. They make all the decisions, whether you have a job, whether you keep a job, what you earn at the job, what your job experience is like, what chances you have or don't have for any kind of improvement in your life. They have all the basic decisions. And what's your power over them? Nothing. You don't like what they do? You can leave. And if you leave the job, you know what you can do? You can choose between starving or going to work for another employer who will have the same power over you that the one had that you left. In other words, capitalism substitutes a new and different kind of undemocratic control. You have to be able to see, yes, capitalism got rid of slavery. Yes, capitalism got rid of feudalism even though if I had more time, I'd talk to you about how capitalism and slavery worked things out for long periods of time and ditto capitalism and feudalism. But let's be generous. Eventually, capitalism pushed aside, overthrew, got rid of slavery and feudalism. But what it substituted was another system that isn't so different, that is fundamentally undemocratic. It doesn't allow you to have control. If the idea of democracy is what it always was, that the mass of people have to be given the power to determine what happens to them, that anyone who has decision-making power over a community has to be subject to the power of that community. Otherwise, you don't have democracy. That's why we make all politicians subject to the elections that we have. At least some control of those who are governed over those who do the governing. But when we walk into our jobs, right? When we walk into that corporate headquarters, we walk into a place five days a week, the best hours of those days, where a tiny group of people can make decisions that affect us but over which we have absolutely no power. Capitalism overthrew undemocratic predecessors, but it installed instead an undemocratic alternative. That's what has to be faced, because until we do, we can't be surprised that the undemocratic capitalist corporation makes a tiny group of people, the major shareholders and the board of directors, as rich as this program has shown them to be. And we can't be surprised that they allow tens of millions of children to live in poverty when the wealth is there to make sure that didn't exist. We have to face that we live with the consequences of an undemocratic economic order.
Haitians, a radio black, white, mixed, and Asian. In this case, there's no discrimination. Ruling a world of capitalization and a so-called globalization. The way of life, selling you salvation, faith or fear, it's a dangerous situation. What are your thoughts on a basic income? I'm all for it and have been for a long time, but just look at who has been for it. This is really amazing. Basic income is a minimal income you can live on for everybody in the country. The economy is so large, as other economies are in terms of per capita GDP, that the economist Lord Keynes in the 1930s during the Depression said we're not many years away from solving the economic problem, those were his words, by which he meant poverty. So a basic income in one swoop abolishes poverty. Now look who first supported it. President Richard Nixon, on the advice of Daniel P. Moynihan, who is a special assistant, a Democrat, put forth a minimum incomes plan to get this country on its way to abolish Poverty. It was subsequently replaced by the earned income tax credit, which, which doesn't quite cut the mustard. It would be a certain amount of money going to everybody in the country without a means test. So some rich people obviously would get it too. It's like social security. Uh-huh. And it would be a certain amount it would be set at so many thousands of dollars a year. And it would replace food stamps, housing assistance, a lot of Medicaid. Uh, in other words, it would be paid for in large by getting rid of the huge bureaucracy, the means testing, the administrative waste, the fraud on Medicare and Medicaid by commercial healthcare delivery companies and firms. And now listen to this first before some conservative listener says it's pie in the sky. Who suggested this plan to Richard Nixon? Milton Friedman. The arch conservative free market economist from the Chicago School of Economics, future Nobel Prize winner. Where did he get the idea? From Frederick von Hayek? Really? Or maybe, or maybe earlier? Frederick von Hayek is the guru of Congressman Paul Ryan, the budget committee head in the House of Representatives, who's a free market advocate to an extreme. And he has said that Frederick Hayek, the Austrian economist, is his guru. But what he doesn't tell us (laughs) is that Frederick Hayek was the precursor of what is often called a minimum guaranteed income or a negative income tax. And so you have a left-right alliance here forming in the Atlantic that used to be the Atlantic magazine. Noah Gordon has written an article called the conservative case for a guaranteed basic income. That was printed this year. And on the left, there's an article in Counterpunch by David Swanson called Basic Income Guarantee versus the Corporate Media. And he's accusing the corporate media of never allowing anyone who advocates this to get on national TV or national radio or in the big papers. So you have a majority of the people f- supporting single-payer health care. That's, that's Medicare for all, everybody in, nobody out. That's an indirect way of providing a guaranteed minimum income. 
And it's been worked out in great detail. And I would suggest, for starters, that you go to the Atlantic website, which is theatlantic.com slash politics slash archive slash 2014-08, the conservative case for a guaranteed basic income. And you go for the liberal progressive version of it to counterpunch.org by David Swanson. And isn't it sad that none of the politicians for the Democrat-Republican Party running for election as incumbents or challenges are mentioning it? Only Green Party, like the candidate in the 21st District in New York State and the candidate for the Green Party for Governor of New York, uh, they are talking about things like that. Howie so Hawkins is running for the governorship on the Green Party. He's coming in at 10%. And the polls challenging Governor Cuomo and Matt Funicello just came in at 10% in a 21st district north of Albany. He's got a whole raft of progressive agendas. So, Ralph, explain to me, how much would this basic income be? What What number are we talking about? Well, the numbers obviously differ on whoever is proposing it. It could be as little as $5,000 or $3,000 a person. So a family of four, it would be $12,000, or it could be up to eight and $10,000. Part of the guaranteed income philosophy is to start out every infant born in our country with a few thousand dollars and just put it away in like a fixed income treasury bond. By the time the person is 21, it amounts to a substantial nest egg. Wouldn't the right, or maybe the corporatists in this case, bring out the same old argument about incentives, that this would quash incentives in the population? On that basis, they'd immolate themselves because they're on welfare to a huge degree. The Wall Street, Houston axis of corporations from oil, gas, drug companies, brokerage, uh, big New York banks. It doesn't even wash anymore. You're talking about a humane policy that's good economics. It keeps mortality in this country down. You know, the poor die more. The poor not, not only pay more, ripoffs in the ghettos, for example, loan sharks and so on. They die more because they don't have enough money to afford health insurance to get diagnosed and treated in time. Facilities, police, emergency ambulances are all lower in the poor areas of the cities than they are in the middle and richer areas of the city. So the arguments are overwhelming. Uh, I could debate this out of my little finger against anybody put up to start arguing that giving people a basic income would reduce their incentive. It would give them more time to get more skills, to upgrade themselves, to live a better life, to learn how to play a musical instrument. I mean, what's what's life for? You know, here, uh, Europeans accuse us of living to work. We actually work more hours per week on the average in the United States of America than any Western country or Japan uh, workers work, and we make less. And that's why they, they accuse us of living to work, where in Western Europe they may have a 30-hour week, 35-hour week. They're much better off, even with their present economic recession. They work to live. 
I remember from Michael Moore's movie, Fahrenheit 9-11, one of the things that really stood out for me was some event that George W. Bush was talking to somebody on stage who was just a, a regular person, and she was saying that she had three jobs. That's good, because I work three jobs, and I feel like I contribute. You work three jobs? Three jobs, yes. Uniquely American, isn't it? I mean, that is fantastic that you're yeah. doing that. Then as the camera's kind of pulling away... He's, you hear him say to her, You get any sleep? And very little is made of the fact that why should somebody have to have three jobs and that be bragged about as being uniquely American? Forty-six people died that, that Saturday. 125 of them young women. They were on the, the 8th, 9th, and 10th floor of the Ash Building in New York City in Greenwich Village. They couldn't get out their main exit. They raced towards the exit gate, and the exit door was locked. And when the police found the women's bodies the following day, uh, they could see the fingernails were torn off the women as they clawed to try to get out. They were completely trapped in an inferno. And many of the workers went out of the window and jumped to their death, went 100 feet down to Green Street. People on the ground looked at these bodies coming down, and they thought that they were bales of clothing. They were horrified when they saw that these were young women leaping from the building. And they did it so that their parents would have their bodies. There was such outrage over the murder of these 146 workers that... 100,000 workers marched in the funeral procession. 400,000 people lined the streets. And the cry was, who is going to protect the working girl? Unions came together with religious organizations, women's groups, community groups. And they demanded change. Automatic sprinkler systems were demanded. Fire exits could never be locked again, and they have to open out the way. This all happened within two months, and for the next 30 years... The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire gave this momentum so that by 1938, we had the Fair Labor Standards Act. We had minimum wage laws, time and a half laws for overtime. Workers had the right to organize. By 1938, there wasn't any sweatshops in the United States. They had been wiped out. The middle class was built in this struggle coming out of Triangle. Now, we're seeing everything that the American people had won and struggled for is being destroyed. On December 14, 2010, just three months shy of the 100th anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York, a fire broke out at the Hamin factory in Bangladesh and the outskirts of Dhaka. It was an 11-story building. It was lunchtime. There were workers in the cafeteria on the 11th floor, and they started to smoke. They didn't panic. 
They did just what the workers did at the Triangle. They started to go towards the exit. The workers tried to get out the exit, and the flames were so great and the smoke was so dense, they had to retreat. They ran through the cafeteria to the other side of the building, the west side, and they tried to go out the fire exits, and the exit doors were locked. They were trapped. Those workers jumped off the top of the building from the 11th floor. They left off the building for the same reason, so that their parents could have their bodies and they could be mourned correctly and they could be buried correctly. Workers on the ground thought these were bales of clothing that were being thrown out the windows. It's word for word the exact same thing. At the Triangle factory, the exit door was locked. The exit door was locked at Hamin 100 years later at the factory fire at Hamin in Bangladesh. And you know what the workers told us? They said that often management locks the exit gates during a fire so that the garments can't be stolen. 29 workers were killed. Over 100 workers were injured. 36 of them seriously and were hospitalized. The management paid the, the families of the deceased workers $2,080 as compensation. That's what a life is worth in the, in the developing world now. This is going on still in the global economy today. Not one change. In fact, it gets worse. And Triangle then made 14 cents an hour. But when you adjust that for inflation, that 14 cents an hour in 1911 is worth $3.18 today. The workers at the Hamin factory in Bangladesh on the outskirts of Dhaka, they're making at the top wage 28 cents an hour. That means that their earning, their wages in Bangladesh today are one-tenth of what wages were in the United States 100 years ago. We are racing to the bottom. The workers work 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week, they get one day, one day off a month. And they live in abject misery, in miserable hovels that are unimaginable. So Bangladesh is now the third largest exporter in the world of garments to the United States. These are Gap children's jeans, toddlers' jeans, shorts. These were made at the Hamin factory fire. Gap was the major label. These jeans sell for $26.95. The workers were paid 28 cents an hour to make these jeans. Hamin doesn't allow the workers to organize. When the workers in Bangladesh struggled for a 35 cent an hour wage, can you imagine? Three and a half million garment workers, 80% of them young women, they protested. They were asking Walmart and Gap and the other com companies for 35 cents an hour. You mean to tell me Gap and Walmart and the other companies couldn't pay 35 cents an hour? They wouldn't do it. And the police went out and attacked the workers. They were beaten. They were attacked by the police. They were beaten with clubs. They shot rubber bullets at the workers. They sprayed them with these powerful water cannons to just knock them down and sweep them off the streets. They put a dye in the water so they could be arrested later. My God, Walmart can't pay 35 cents an hour? When the workers went out and asked for that 35 cents an hour, the most modest of men, they were beaten. The death of those 146 mostly young women at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory way back in 1911 that led to all the progressive changes in the United States, which led to the middle class, uh, that's being destroyed right now as we race backwards in the global economy. And just what happened at Triangle, where laws were put in place to hold these, these, these corporations accountable, now, as all of the production has gone offshore, we need laws to protect 
the rights of these workers in the developing world. We need to lift all ships. They've demanded enforceable laws to protect their products. The GAP labels protected under intellectual property and copyright laws. You make a knockoff of GAP, you go to jail, you go to prison, they'll find you. But when you say to GAP or Walmart or these other companies, can't we have similar laws to protect the rights of the 18-year-old women who made these garments? And they say, no, that would be an impediment to free trade. We believe in fair trade. And we'll say to the corporations, you bring your goods into, into the United States from anywhere. We'll take them. We'll take them from anywhere. But you're not going to bring that product into the United States that was made by a child. You're not going to bring that product into the United States that was made by teenagers who are stripped of their rights, forced to work 15 hours a day, seven days a week, for pennies an hour, with no right to organize. We have the right to have legislation. This is what we worked on with the United Steelworkers. We have the right to have legislation that bans the import of child labor goods to the United States and sweatshop goods to the United States. Workers in the, across the developing world, they will have their rights. Uh, this should be the legacy of the 100th anniversary of the Chango Shirtwaist Factory Fire, that we do in the global economy what we did in our domestic economy. I believe very strongly as we race to this bottom in the global sweatshop economy, that this is the most necessary social movement of our generation. And God help us, God help the young people if we fail. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Did you know that Martin Luther King actually called for not only the government to be the employer of last resort, but to be a good employer? For the government to actually come up with high-quality jobs? He came up with what he called a Bill of Economic and Social Rights. And the King Center has the original of it on on their website uh, that you can track down... uh, relatively easily, and he was calling for us to establish jobs. Now, FDR had called for the same thing uh, 30 years earlier, 20 years earlier, 20-some-odd 20, 20 years earlier, but basically calling for a job to be considered a right so that if capitalism failed, if you know, when capitalism fails, when capitalism hiccups, when capitalism goes through those 
periodic boom and bust cycles and crashes as it does, as Martin Luther King Jr. himself pointed out it does. He said that we have a national responsibility to provide work for all. We, we the people, the United States of America, the government. And he said these should not be just uh, make work employments. He said they should be careers. There's enough stuff that needs to be done and enough of it that's not just, hey, let's dig holes and then fill them up, you know, but the real stuff. He said there are literally millions of creative public sec- service jobs which could be opened up for the poor at a minimal cost and in short order. These are not make-work employments. They are new careers. He also echoed Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine suggested in Agrarian Justice that every American at birth that a basically a uh, a bank account a, a uh, should be should be created for them and funded by the government that they would have access to after they become 21 and could be a foundation of wealth that everybody would have a certain amount of wealth and you know there have been others who have suggested and there's this movement we've talked about it. in fact we've had guests on this program from the the guaranteed minimum income movement in Europe who are suggesting, and this is, I think it's going to be on the ballot in Spain this fall, but it's going to be in one of the European countries, who are suggesting that that everybody gets a certain minimum income, you know, for lack of a better word, an actual, you know, a certain minimum guaranteed income, whether they work or not. And Martin Luther King, the the... Dr. Reverend, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called for the same thing. His second right, the first was the right of a job, the second was the right of a minimum income. He said that we've got this patchwork of programs that are utterly inadequate and largely discriminatory. Let's do away with those and just replace them Well, actually, not not do away with them. He says, however, in urging a guaranteed income, we most emphatically do not believe, as some conservative proponents of the idea do, that it will be a substitute for the entire welfare state. It's one element. And he also wanted it to be fixed so that as GNP goes up or as cost of living goes up, that this guaranteed national income goes up. This was not just for African Americans, it was for white kids as well. It's for all for all all people. Actually the income, I mean, for their for their parents. The third right that he called for was the right of a decent house and a free choice of neighborhood. And he said we should we should eliminate all the slums in America over the next ten years. He suggested that we should have a right to an adequate education. He was talking about how 
schools that that are that are basically all black. Well, he, he, I'll quote the I'll quote Dr. King. He said, "Quote." Negro schools are regularly so inferior that a good portion of the students are not even taught the basic educational skills and therefore become bored, resentful, and drop out at the first opportunity, end quote. So let's upgrade those. And then he said, you know, upgrade education available to the black and white poor. He called for a peacetime GI Bill. Basically, you know, let's do what we did after World War II. Send people off to school so that young men and women can can go to college after we've taken care of good elementary schools, primary schools. He wanted another right he felt everybody should have is the right to participate in the decision making process. Get involved in politics. The right to the full benefits of modern science in health care. Basically, everyone should have health care. And then he talked about how, you know, but people are going to say we can't afford this because of the war in Vietnam. Well, we should end the war in Vietnam and fund these programs instead. It's sort of like the, the uh, you know, let's end the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and rebuild America first. You know, Merle Haggard's song. Let's rebuild America first. Why don't we liberate these United States? We're the ones who need it worst. Let the rest of the world help us for change. And let's rebuild America first. Our highways and bridges are falling apart. Who's blessed and who has been cursed? There's things to be done all over the world, but let's rebuild America first. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, protest Black Friday. Welcome. We are collectively on the brink of height of capitalism season or holiday season, depending on your degree of festiveness. This is the time of year where we regularly hear of people getting trampled in the desperate rush to procure the item that advertising executives declare is the must-have, no way you can live without it, get mocked by all of your peers, and disappoint and scar your children for life if you miss out on this one, gift. Low-wage workers must report for duty while CEOs and high-level managers who demand their stores open on Thanksgiving and Black Friday are home with their loved ones. This annual injustice has expanded so much over the past decade that the only thing left is for stores to be open 24 hours a day from Thanksgiving morning through the end of Black Friday. Luckily, there's a super easy thing everyone can do to support the workers and stop further capitalist encroachment into our holidays. Nothing. Really, you can just do nothing. Buy Nothing Day is an international day of protest against consumerism. Adbusters, the group that initially sparked Occupy Wall Street, is promoting Buy Nothing Day with the hashtag BND and asking people to participate by not participating. Just stay home. Don't go shopping. Don't cross picket lines of striking workers. Simply opt out of the post-turkey dash for deals. Let family and friends you hear discussing their plans to shop 
shop on Friday, November 28th, know that you're parking it on the couch with a movie or a book, and why not invite them to join you? Stores and malls are only opening Friday at dawn, some on Thanksgiving Day even, because people show up and shove each other out of the way in the hopes of saving 10% on a widget that no one will even remember was a thing by the time the snow melts. By not participating, you make it expensive for stores to stay open early, close late, and schedule extra staff. Now, if you're inspired to get active, you can attend a Walmart Black Friday protest organized at blackfridayprotests.org and under the hashtag WalmartStrikers. There are events happening all over the country in support of more than 2,000 stores where workers are demanding a $15 an hour living wage. Obviously, abstaining entirely from the annual purchasing bonanza is a tough ask that can go over like a stocking full of lead in some families. So if you do plan on doing a bit of traditional holiday gift buying and you don't take my good advice to support only local, independently owned businesses, then don't forget that you can redirect a portion of the corporate profits into supporting the production of this show through the Amazon link at bestoftheleft.com, which now works for the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If supporting workers and fighting capitalism's excesses matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Buy Nothing Day and the Walmart Black Friday strikes via social media so that others in your network can participate by not participating too. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentary. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Fast food is normally a topic that I rather enjoy. Uh, In this case, I'm going to get a little angry about it in a minute. Uh, let me tell you what's been going on here uh, in this fight. For That's actually happened for over the last two years. A lot of fast food workers have been going on strike. Uh, they've done multiple lawsuits. Uh, part of the reason is waste theft. So a lot of uh, companies make them buy their own uniforms, uh, which is against the law, right? They make them work extra hours. Uh, in fact, uh, the National Labor Relations Board recently uh, ruled against McDonald's. McDonald's was saying, oh, that's the franchises. I got nothing to do with the franchises. But they were able to show, no, in fact, they do have a lot to do with the franchises. In fact, McDonald's oversees their labor costs. And then we'll send them a warning, your labor costs are too high. And then the local franchisee will then say, okay, all of you uh, workers, go off the clock, but keep working. But but that's illegal. You're basically making them work for free. You're stealing their wages from them. That's what's called wage theft, right? And you do it systematically. 
So McDonald's lost at the Na National Labor Relations Board, so they got a new strategy, which I'm going to tell you about in a second. But first of all, let me give you more context as to how significant a problem this is. Nine in ten fast food workers report wage theft. Nine in ten. So it's an overwhelming problem. To give you a sense of uh, how disparate the treatment is of workers as opposed to executives, the industry pays corporate CEOs 1,200 times more than it pays the typical worker. Now, if you think, well, I mean, I, I get it, the CEO is really good and he deserves it, and uh, yeah, but they barely made any profit. That's why they can't pay the workers. If they paid the workers, they wouldn't make any money. Pfft, last year, McDonald's made $5.6 billion in profit. They've got plenty of profit. They just choose not to share it with workers, even if they make those workers continue to work and, in a lot of cases, not pay them. Okay? So uh, let me give you, again, a sense of how bad a problem it is. Let's take a state like California, which actually has a lot of protections, let alone the states that don't. So imagine the rest of the states. In California, where labor law is robust, Think Progress explains, workers have less then one in five chance of recovering lost wages, even when they prove that they were robbed and win a judgment for restitution from the state. Wage theft steals more money each year than every bank robbery and store holdup in America combined. So it is literally the biggest form of theft in America. It happens to 90% of fast food workers. And even when you prove you were robbed, you only collect 20% of the time. That is egregious, right? So, now McDonald's and the fast food industry overall, they're caught. They got a ruling against them. They have been doing it. There's evidence. And now the workers are striking. So what are they going to do? They're going to do the oldest trick in the book. Go to your bought politicians in Washington and get them to rig the system for you. So here comes the report on that. The International Franchise Association is flying fast food store owners and other franchisees into Washington on Tuesday to drum up congressional opposition to a recent legal decision that could make corporations liable for how franchise employees are treated. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you guys were the ones that were against government interference. All of a sudden, what are you doing? You're running to the government to get your favors. And when they do that, who are they going to go to? Of course, these guys. Speaker John Boehner and former Republican Governors Association head and Mississippi Governor Haley Barber are scheduled to speak to the group, and the paper reports that top Senate Republicans will introduce legislation targeting federal labor regulators in general later this week. Now, drop it. This is exactly what's wrong with our government. Look at these guys. We're in the wrong. The facts are in. The ruling is against us. Who cares? We bought all these politicians. We're going to go tell them who they work for. Okay, those guys we pay. Okay, <laughs> those are important people to pay. You go get your corrupt congressman like John Boehner, get your he former head of the Republican governors Haley Barber, and you these fat cats walk in and they say, "Crush our workers for us. Allow us to continue to do the biggest theft in America." They say they're pro-business. How about the guy who's working for that business? You see, in the end, it was supposed to help us. The idea is, if you're pro-business, that it creates a good environment for business, that allows you to get employed, 
and hence it's good for the American people. Except we lost that link. Now you're employed, oftentimes you work, and they don't pay you anyway, while they take home billions of dollars. And when they get busted, what do they do? They love government interference. They hate the free market. They hate negotiating with their workers. So they just go to their bought politicians and say, all right, just make this problem go away from me. Reverse the ruling, make legislation, rig the rules, rig the free market. Kill the free market, do crony capitalism. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Let me continue to steal from my workers. And of course, the Republican Party is there to oblige, oftentimes the Democratic Party too, but as you see in this report, it is clearly the Republicans they ran to, the clearly the Republicans that are introducing legislation and can't wait to do their bidding, because that's their boss. That's the guy who signs their checks. God damn it, let's get them all. Okay? Uh, that's why we started Wolfpack. Let's go get the sons of bitches. If you allow this system, you know what's going to happen? They're going to win. I, I'm going to come back here in a couple of months, and I'm going to do a story about how the, the Republicans wrote a piece of uh, legislation. Oh, the Democrats pretend to fight, but then gave in, and it turns out it became law, and they overruled it, and their workers get nothing, and they continue to do the largest theft in America. It dwarfs all other thefts combined. It's not to help the American people. It's to rob the American people. Get up, get up, get up. Wolf-pack.com. If you don't get money out of politics, well, all those politicians, of course, are going to do the bidding of the people paying them. And it's these giant corporations that are paying them. And that's why they crush workers all across America. Because they don't represent you. They represent these guys. you got to get money out of politics. It can be done. From the first day that they protested in the streets, the suffragist movement took just seven years to get an amendment. Women couldn't vote. They had no chance, they had no hope that they could possibly win the right to vote when they couldn't vote in the first place. Can we do this? Hell yeah, we can do it. We already won in California. We already won in Vermont. We're on the march. Whenever we go anywhere, we get literally people in legislative offices saying, we are scared of your mountain army. We just had somebody in Washington uh, tell us uh, secretly, we it's a liberal group. It's a liberal group that says, we tell people in Washington, we're not like Wolfpack. Because Wolfpack is dangerous. Goddamn right we are. We're dangerous to these sons of bitches that have been stealing your money all along. That go run to their John Bainies and Bainers and, and, and Haley Barbers and say, Oh, okay, now you Republicans, conservatives, real conservatives out there. You say you hate crony capitalism. First of all, you vote for every top crony capitalist. The leader of the Republicans in the Senate is Mitch McConnell. The leader, the greatest example of crony capitalist ever. But you say big government sucks. Big government is corrupt. I agree with you. Who do you think corrupted them? This story shows you this is exactly how they get corrupted. They sign big paychecks, McDonald's does. Oh, here's a tiny percentage of our $5.6 billion. I don't want to pay my workers. I'll pay John Boehner instead. I'll pay Mitch McConnell. I'll pay Haley Barber. And they will go and pass laws and rig the system so the workers and the American people are crushed. Aren't you goddamn tired of that system? Even if you're a conservative, you're a liberal, you're a libertarian, doesn't matter. you got to join us so that together we are strong, and yes, so that they are scared of us, so that we can fix this system. Wolf-Pack.com. It's time, right now.
Hey Jay, this is Peter Block. I'm calling from Little Rock, Arkansas. I was calling to get the opinion of you and some of the listeners. I am a NICU nurse, so I work with premature babies, and was recently offered a job to work a strike that is probably going to be happening in LA at a Kaiser facility. And um, never really thought about working a strike before. It just doesn't come up in the South. There aren't really any nursing unions. And so I asked my girlfriend's opinion, and she is a physician, and she feels like it is morally and ethically wrong for medical workers to strike because it puts patient well-being at risk. And we both took an oath to do no harm. And uh, I totally agree with that, and I get exactly where she's coming from. But I also wonder if in not striking, we are, and we work in that strike, I suppose, if we are trading the well-being of future patients for the well-being of present patients. You know, as because the corporations want to trim the fat as they see it, and uh, that leads to worse nurse-to-patient ratios, and they, I don't want to get into it, but a whole slew of auxiliary hospital staff that make a patient health care so much better. Anyway, I just wanted to reach out and see what some of the listeners thought because um, it's coming down to the wire and I won't have time to think too much about it myself. Oh, and uh, I hope you had a good vacation looking at uh, leaves and stuff. All right, have a good one. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is uh, Ben from New Jersey calling. I just listened to your episode on the elections, and um, there's a lot of good pieces that you played, and I think it's it's certainly the right way to go to focus on some of the issues with the process itself, uh, obviously the, the money that's involved and, and items like that. Um, but I really want to focus on the issue of turnout, and especially in the midterms uh, and off-year elections, and the importance of your local and, and state races. I think a big issue that often is overlooked, uh, well, there's two issues. I think the first is, uh, number one, our, our local media. Um, if you look at, you know, um, in, in New Jersey, for example, if, if you look at your races of, uh, of your county freeholders, which I, I guess in other places would be considered county supervisors, your state senators, your state assemblymen and women, I, those types of positions, it's, it's so difficult to find good media that is actually covering the issues of your local legislators. And they are wielding a lot of power in the states, and as the GOP continues to get a stronger foothold in a lot of these states, it's just a shame. Um, local media is really non-existent, and, and that's becoming a, a, a huge issue. Um, how do you expect people to um, have an informed vote when they don't have solid information to draw from? And I know, you know, the argument is, well, there's the Internet, there's ways to find out. But in reality, it, the, the Internet doesn't really even provide that much better information about your local elections than, than, it, than it would otherwise. So I, I don't think that's 100% valid. Um, the other thing is, is just straight down education. I know at least when I was going through high school, uh, I took a political and legal education course, and it taught civics, and it taught the system, and taught the process. And I really think that's extremely lacking right now. I think a lot of folks don't know the role of their legislators, the role of certain government positions. And I, I really think that the idea of going to register to vote is not something uh, younger people are doing immediately when they turn 18 like I did. It was a, a rite of passage for me. I went out. I got registered. I know many states you get registered when you get your license. But that certainly doesn't encourage you to go out to the polls and vote. So anyway, those are just my two cents on that. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Kubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. First, a quick programming note and then a story. Programming note is that this is the last episode before a Thanksgiving break. I'm just going to take one episode off. I'll put one of the best rerun episodes of the past year in there, so you'll have something to listen to. And uh, and then secondly, the uh, the decision about the non-indictment of Darren Wilson, the police officer who killed Michael Brown in Missouri, uh, that news broke last night, and. My tentative plan is to do an episode about that, you know, just after the holiday, but I'll have to see how the logistics of all the shows talking about it works out, you know, as, as the story unfolds and as all the normal sources I use may be taking the break this week. So, uh, who knows what, uh, will even be available, but that's the news that is broken and I'll, I'll get to it as soon as I can. It may be uh, the beginning of next week or the end of next week, hopefully, at the latest. Now, a quick story. I I was reminded about a Super Bowl party I went to while making uh, today's episode because of the clip of Richard Wolff sort of dissecting the history of economic systems and, you know, the, the history of either slave systems or feudalist systems and now how, you know, capitalism sort of arose from the ashes of those old feudalist systems. And, uh, and I was reminded of the Super Bowl party because I, you know, I was out at like a friend's house and there was a guy who, you know, is a friend of a friend who is an Australian libertarian and he, uh, is like an intern or he was at the time an intern at the Atlas Institute, uh, here in DC. If you know anything about libertarianism and its connection to Ayn Rand, then you get the sense of where the Atlas Institute got its name. And so, so this young guy, you know, 22, 23, something like that, you know, obviously he knew everything about the world and, and, uh, was totally buying into libertarianism as, as a philosophy that made a lot of sense to him. And since he was Australian and I am me, neither of us cared at all about the Super Bowl. So we just argued politics for a couple hours instead. And a couple of things he said stuck in my mind. And one was his response to my idea of why collectivist governments make sense. And it was basically the idea that, you know, we as humans, you know, we draw our power from our ability to work together. You know, we're not faster than animals. We're not uh, stronger than animals that, you know, would very much like to hunt us and eat us. So we arose to our current level of dominating the world because of our ability to work together. And so, of course, from that stems uh, are the types of governmental systems that we have because as people, we need to collectively make decisions and some decisions are so large that we can't just make them in small groups. We have to make them as a very large group. And when the group gets so large, we need a representative government to help make those decisions for all of the people instead of, you know, each individual just being on their own. And so, you know, I was saying like governments that work on behalf of all of the people are integral to the, the fundamental way in which humans function. And his response to that was, you know, yeah, that's pro- that's true up until a point, and that definitely helped us get to where we are. But maybe 
have you considered that libertarianism is the next step in evolution? Like we we used to need those governments to help us make decisions collectively so that we could build the infrastructure that we have. But now that we are where we are, well, maybe we don't need that anymore. And we can sort of evolve beyond that type of government, which sounds crazy to me. I, I was As I was thinking about this, I thought it sort of sounds like, you know, architects uh, getting so cocky in their ability to construct these very, very tall buildings that they begin to think to themselves, hey, you know, we're getting so good at building these really, really tall buildings. Maybe we don't need foundations anymore. I mean, look how tall they are. Like so much of the building is above the ground. Why do we even need to pay that much attention to the foundation? We, we could evolve beyond the need for foundations. So yeah, I, I, I found his comments to be insane, but uh, I was reminded of it when Richard Wolff was talking about the evolution of economic systems, of course, not to be confused with governmental systems. They're not the same. But uh, as he was talking about the evolution of economic systems, I thought, you know, like for a system to evolve from like feudalism to capitalism, I, I can acknowledge that individuals functioning in a capitalist system have a, a great deal more freedom than individuals in a feudalist system. It's pretty obvious. So we, we've evolved in a good direction there. And so as he was describing how to infuse the tenets of democracy into an economic system by way of having, uh, you know, cooperatively owned businesses where the workers actually are the owners and so on, like that fundamentally makes sense to me as an evolutionary step in economic systems where we go from you know, the slavery and feudalism up to capitalism, we have a little bit more freedom. And then the next step should be a, a, another step towards greater freedom, greater, uh, you know, individual capacity to direct one's own life and so on and so on. As, as humans, as we, you know, we're in charge of sort of directing our own evolution. This is not, of course, not talking uh, biologically, but uh, as we direct our own evolution, sort of important to try to figure out where we want to get to and then take steps to move in that direction. So yeah, that that, that clip by Richard Wolff was just really fascinating, made me think of that story. And since, since that uh, uh, libertarian kid was so nutty and so entertaining, I, I take any opportunity I can think of to uh, to bring up that conversation. But that is going to be it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, except for holidays. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our sad stories and Forget how to listen